Welcome to the Canon Law Society of America podcast, where Catholic canon lawyers share their stories, their knowledge, and their love for the law. Now, here's your host with this episode's guest canonist. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this edition of our podcast series. This is an installation of our member spotlight series, and we are here today and very pleased to have with us Deacon Dr. David Keene, who is a member of the Canonical Affairs staff for the Archdiocese of Chicago. As I mentioned, he's a permanent deacon. Dr. Keene was a scholastic in the Society of Jesus, the Jesuits, for eight years. Eventually, he married. He has now three adult children, and he is an archaeologist. He founded his own business called the Archaeological Research Incorporated. The way that uh, Dr. Keene came to my attention was Monsignor Jason Gray did a webinar recently for us, and uh, David sent some kind of a notification, I guess you'd call it, saying that he had been involved with the canonical investigation for Father Patrick Ryan from Tennessee. As I began kind of looking uh, at David's profile, I saw that his archaeology background, his studies in canon law. So tell us a little bit about canon law and why you decided to go study canon law. Well, I, I would have to say I, I didn't necessarily um, do this uh, willingly, but then uh, on reflection, very th- little in my career throughout my life uh, happened intentionally on my part. Even becoming an archaeologist, I was kind of dragged into it. But t- to answer your question directly, uh, I, I was essentially approached by uh, the chancellor for the Archdiocese of Chicago. Um, They were looking for uh, someone who had lots of experience in writing, um, uh, was well-educated, and was sort of nearing retirement. I I fit all those uh, criteria. Um, And so they asked me to join the staff and offered to um, uh, pay for uh, allowing me to go to school um, to get my JCL. And so I'm in the, I'm halfway through my JCL and should be finished in a, about a year and a half. And um, uh, that's sort of, that's sort of how it happened. Um, and, and you're at St. Paul University, is that right? At St. Paul University in Ottawa, yes. They may have known yeah. that you're getting ready to retire. <laughs> Yeah, I think um, fellow members w- would find this humorous. Um, uh, uh, Father Westman uh, is on the staff uh, until very recently uh, at the Archdiocese of Chicago. And whenever I'd have a question, I would go into his office and, and sit and talk with him. And at one point, I, I said to him, um, you know, I'm an old man. Uh, I don't know how much longer I have in this. And he said, well, how old are you? And I said, 67. He said, and he, he stopped, he paused, and he said, well, I'm 25 years older than you are. You've got at least 25 more years of service in the church. Um, so he, he put the whole the <laughs> issue of retirement into perspective for me. <laughs> Absolutely. Your studies at St. Paul then, how has your experience as an archaeologist, has it been helpful? Has it had any role in, as you're studying and what you draw from in your studies? It's graduate school, as you know, it's professional school, it's getting a law degree, Um, but I have a PhD already. And so, well, I remember being a graduate student, you know, back in the late 70s and early 80s. And 
it was difficult because you're really being acculturated into a, a, a world of, of, of scholarly activity. But I've now spent a lifetime uh, in a world of scholarly activity. And so this is just an extension of that. You know, this is not, it's, it's not new, it's not difficult. Because I don't have, you know, being as old as I am, I don't have those emotional traumas that she, that a younger person has in graduate school. Things don't scare me anymore. You know, <laughs> if this doesn't work, so <laughs> and so that it's it is amazing. And I have I have children in graduate school right now, and as as we talk, I, I try to encourage them that not to let the the fear of 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 graduate school and you know and success get in the way of really learning because what if you get rid of that trauma uh, and that that feeling of anxiety you can really, you've got a lot of, a lot more energy than you thought you had, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Once you get your JCL, your licentiate, I would say mostly people go into um, marriage tribunal work, but is that what is in store for you or do they have something else in store or do you know? <laughs> they, they have, uh, they have other things in store for me. Um, and I get, uh, I get the impression that uh, uh, right now I prepare documentation for laicization of priests and deacons. Um, and that was one of the reasons they brought me on because they wanted someone who was a little more mature, a little farther down the line in career, a uh, clearer understanding of the foibles of life um, and that people come and go in, in various things. And, uh, and, and also someone who was comfortable in doing research and also comfortable in, in holding confidence. Um, and so that, that is the, the type of thing, but I, they're giving me the impression that, um, uh, you know, I, I don't know what the rest of the country is like and the other dioceses are like, but um, there is a, there's a term we uh, like to use in anthropology called superannuated, uh, which means older people, um, superannuated, you know, many years, a lot of years. <laughs> and um, the uh, demographics in the canonical affairs office is, uh, is essential. I'm one of the younger people, I guess yeah. is what I want to say. <laughs> I'm one of, and it's very few places that I'm considered the, the young guy in, in the office, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so they're preparing you. And as Father Westman said, you may have 25 more years. <laughs> well, well, exactly. And so I, I get the impression there. There, uh, I'm, I'm going to have sort of a freelance role, you know, that uh, okay. wherever I'm needed, I'm going to be pushed. And, um, that's, and that's all right with me. That's, that's quite all right. Um, so you already had, besides archaeology, which, uh, which we'll talk more about here soon, uh, you, as I mentioned, kind of in the intro, and it's in your bio, that you uh, studied as you were a Jesuit scholastic. So tell us a little bit about that. Were you interested in, in clerical life from an early age and then... Well, Did you know, I, I, atten I attended Loyola University here in Chicago, mm -hmm. um, and after that, uh, I was I was just captivated with um, uh, uh, the the Jesuits that uh, I uh, got to know on campus. Uh, those who taught the classes I was in, um, I was very attracted to the lifestyle, and so I did enter the Jesuits. And um, uh, as uh, many of my good friends who uh, uh, who were in the novitiate with me like to say that uh, that I really never left. They like 
they like to say. Um, right. um, and uh, it or or is uh, I, th there's a phrase out there that you can take the man out of the Jesuits, but you can't take the Jesuit out of the man. <laughs> and I, I think that's very true. Uh, it's it's the type of training um, uh, which is very intensive. But I, I it became clear to me after a, a number of years that. Um, Oh, I like to characterize it as for many of the same reasons I entered, I had to leave. Um, uh, and, you know, eventually in life, I got led to the diaconate, which I think even as a young person entering the Jesuits, I wanted to, the, the Jesuits were so attractive to me because they were doing things in the real world. You know, uh, uh, Father Drynan was a congressman and, you know, you had right. all these Jesuits being activists because this was the 70s activists. They were doing all kinds of things. And it really, really uh, appealed to me to be able to do the work of the world and not be of it um, and, and be, you know, a, 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 a representative for Christ. And, uh, and I think I found that eventually when I became a deacon that I could, I, mm -hmm. you know, those types of things uh, being really in the world and yet not have to, you know, completely be swallowed up by the values of the world, you know? Right. I think it's a hard place for everybody today, you know, and have to be- Absolutely. Let's focus a little bit on um, as an archaeologist. So tell us how archaeology and the cause of sainthood. You mentioned that there are two um, servants of God whose cases you've been involved with. And tell us a little bit about that. Just a little background. Just a little background. First, uh, I was uh, I had my first experience doing doing archaeology as a high school student. I was part of back in the late '60s. The National Science Foundation would give money to various institutions to have summer programs for um, uh, highly selected high school students, and I was selected to be part of a program at, in the Field Museum here in Chicago. And uh, it was uh, an anthropology program, and, and there were guest speakers from the various universities, not only here in Chicago, but throughout the country. Uh, and one week out of the, the summer, we were out on an archaeological excavation. And so even as early as, you know, between my junior and senior year in high school, I, I started doing archaeology. And as I like to characterize to people, my, at the end of the first week, I remember turning to one of my fellow students and saying, Oh, this is this is really hard work. I, I don't think I'll ever do this again. Um, and unfortunately, I kept getting asked to work for, you know, at first for archaeology. They liked the way I worked. They, you know, they I was, you know, uh, I, I guess I was uh, uh, attentive in the field. Um, I paid attention um, and I was a good technician. And so I kept getting offered jobs and throughout college. Um, and, and so it eventually became there was it was not much of a choice on my part. It, just, it kept choosing me. <laughs> and so, you know, eventually I, I went to the University of Wisconsin uh, and got my PhD there in uh, anthropology with concentration in uh, archaeology of the Americas. So, um, and then sort of as life went on, mostly in the last 30 years or so, um, I kept getting calls because human remains would pop up in various places. And I got to be, got a reputation is that when there's uh, unplanned, 
appearances of human remains that I was the person to call to handle it. In fact, I've even done some work with, um, uh, with the sheriff's police in Cook County on cold cases and things like that. So, oh, that's fascinating. I, did, cases, so. I saw one of the websites where you had been involved with the Lincoln Park uh, disinterment or uh, some of the bodies that were buried there. And I that, believe, uh, believe it or not, I'm still doing work there. I'm on call because the Chicago Historical Society is doing some landscape changes around their building. And uh, the area that they the building rests on in the surrounding area is was a cemetery and um in fact um as i uh i, I have some human remains in my garage at this moment um, oh my goodness i get called please come out we think we hit something and then i have to go out and spend a day and do you know and remove some things so um and I tried to get out of that <laughs> but they looked at me and said but you're the only one who knows enough about this as our, as our listeners will know what they look into, who you are, they'll see that you were involved in the cause of saints, uh, two whose causes are still um, waiting. And, and which ones came first, Father Tolton or Father Ryan? Father Tolton came first. Okay, so tell us how that evolved and why, Chicago, was it the Archdiocese of Chicago involved or was it just you that got the call or? It was the Archdiocese of Chicago. Um, I was doing some work at the time for the Cook County Sheriff's Police on a uh, on a, a criminal case, and um, they had gotten a call from the director of Chicago Cemeteries, um, uh, and uh, they explained to the detective I was working with um, that they were going to have to uh, do an excavation of remains, but um, they didn't think that their their people had the expertise to uh, exhume uh, the very few remains that might be left in this case. And, you know, did they know anybody? And the, the, uh, the detective is really a wonderful guy. He said, he said, why are you calling me? You have a deacon in the Archdiocese of Chicago who works for us. He's an archaeologist. He does this all the time. And so that's what led to um, uh, me, you know, uh, uh, being asked to uh, be involved in the recovery of the remains of Father Augustus Tolton. I mean, I have to admit, when I first read his name, I Googled him, as we are wont to do, when we don't know something. So tell our listeners who may not be familiar with who Father Tolton was a little about him. Uh, Father Tolton was born into slavery. Uh, he is he he is the or, uh, or was the first African American priest uh, in the United States. Um, he really wanted to become a priest. No diocese or uh, religious order in the United States would accept him. But he did find, you know, a patron who uh, actually sent him to Rome to study for the priesthood. And you know, he was clearly a gifted man because he, you know, acquired knowledge of a few languages uh, as well as Latin. Um, and, you know, as a child, uh, and I don't mean to, to, to hop around, but um, as a child, he escaped slavery with his mother and his siblings uh, uh, as they were being shot at. Uh, you know, they crossed the, the river, Mississippi River from uh, uh, the Missouri side to the Illinois side near Quincy, Illinois. Um, and so they, they made some heroic uh, uh, efforts to, to get out of slavery right during the Civil War. So um, 
it was Absolutely. it was quite the quite he he's quite the individual he died here in chicago uh, was buried uh however in quincy um mm. he uh, uh and even in chicago uh he collapsed on his, on the street uh in chicago at about the age oh and i could be wrong with the details but he was in his late 40s and it was taken, he was, he was just about a mile from Mercy Hospital in Chicago, mm. taken to Mercy Hospital, and they weren't going to treat him because he was a black man. Oh, wow. And uh, it, it wasn't until one of the bishops came forward and said, oh, no, he's a priest in the archdiocese, that they, they began to treat him, but he, he died anyway, so... Fascinating. I, I'll link to this on uh, when we post your podcast that the Archdiocese of Chicago has a timeline of his. Yes. Uh, a little yes. bit about him. And it, as I'm looking at it now, I'm seeing that his mother was actually born in um, Kentucky, which is yes. my home state, and then went to Missouri. And then Augustus is born in 1854. So mm-hmm. we're talking in his death, you're right, 43, I think it says his age was 1897. So he'd been interred for. 120 over 120 years Almost 120 years yes close yeah. to the time when you did when the exhumation was done so so when they do an exhumation how does how does that all play about you've got to get a number of people together you've got it's it was at the diocese of springfield well the the action the action was um done by the the team um, the cemetery team came from the Archdiocese of Chicago because okay. in Chicago we have lots of people, you know, a, a well-trained staff of people who are used to um, digging graves uh, and working mm-hmm. in cemeteries. Um, and, and opening a grave in a cemetery is a cemetery activity, whether it's done, you know, by the direction of the FBI or sheriff's office or the state you know, state's attorney's office, or, you know, the Catholic church, it's a cemetery activity. So cemetery personnel have to be there. Uh, he was buried in the, the Springfield diocese and Spring, the Springfield diocese didn't have all the personnel that they needed to do this. Cause it does take quite a few people. It's, um, uh, it, it's, it, it is quite a team operation. Um, I saw some of the documentation of Bishop Paprocki was uh, yes. signed many of those documents that eventually go to the Holy See. And again, that's it's a whole fascinating. We could spend all day and then yes, some talking, <laughs> talking yes. about some of these these issues. So as the grave was being dug, I saw like a timeline minute, almost minute by minute. Every few minutes, they would talk about certain uh, discovery, not discoveries, but as certain bones exactly were uncovered and and the handles on the coffin that were still in existence and that they were then reverently placed in places and Bishop Paprocki was leading the rosary. It, it must have just been a real emotional event. Well, what, you know, it was, it was, it was for me. Um, but then, you know, I, I've, uh, I've removed uh, at, at least a hundred, uh, between a hundred and 200 bodies from, from the ground. And it's always uh, uh an emotional event. It's very stressful. Um, I, I did find Augustus Tolton uh, uh, very emotional because he was quickly um, returning to the earth. He was becoming part of the earth. In fact, the direction given um, by the uh, uh, Congregation for the Causes of the Saints required that we clean 
the human remains as we remove them from the ground and reassemble them into a new uh, container or urn or in a you know a new coffin. His remains, we were unable to clean them because if we did, they would completely crumble to dust. Um, so we had to slowly scoop up things. There were some things his his skull was was well intact, but um, most of uh, you know his postcranial features, the rest of his body, uh, they were just resting at the uh, about eight feet down um, on very thick sandy soil, very damp, and they were just becoming part of the earth again. Um, it is an emotional thing to me because you know I'm I'm pulling. I'm pulling somebody literally out of the ground, you know, pulling them out, you know, uh, out. In the, there's there's a bit of a, a resistance going on. And I, I, I remember um, uh, I remember thinking in my head and sort of addressing him, saying to him that uh, uh, I'm sorry to have to do this to you, but we're calling you back into service. Um, the, the church is calling you back into service. And um, then it seemed, and you know, that was mostly you know, my reflection, but we are, mm -hmm. you know, and I also said Absolutely. that, I also said that uh, uh, last month or uh, back in July when we were doing that for Patrick Ryan also, right. in a whole different kind of uh, situation. But, and, and even um, the people who were, who were watching this go on, um, now I've done this many times. And mm -hmm. so I, this, uh, Augustus Tolton was in the condition I expected him to be in. Um, when we when we you know got to the level in the ground where he was, um, but uh, many others, Bishop Proprocki included, uh, said to me, "This this is amazing. I've never seen anything like this." And <laughs> and, and you know I, I'm very busy with all kinds of things and didn't have time uh, you know to reflect them. But when I began to reflect on people saying this to me, I thought. Well, I wonder what it, what they what image they had in their mind of what we were going to find, and I can only think that it was probably a lot like what we see on television and movies. Mm -hmm. You know, and the movie that strikes me or comes to my, my mind is uh, Hocus Pocus, done, that movie yes. done back in the nineties, where <laughs> you know you've got you know an old cemetery and a person pops up out of the ground, you know, surrounded by wood and all this kind of stuff, and it's sure. but that that's not how it is at all. You know? No, as just ashes dust to dust it really brings exactly exactly now you mentioned um father ryan and so is that the second case that you were involved in yes along the same line so tell us a little bit tell our listeners a little bit about who father ryan is Not many of them will know but just in case they don't um this is very timely in a certain sense father ryan died during a yellow fever mm -hmm. pandemic or epidemic um in um 1878 yeah. he, he and he died because he refused to leave town uh he was in chattanooga um and he refused to leave town because he was working with the victims of the mm -hmm. epidemic and of course yellow fever as we know today is spread by mosquitoes much like malaria is um and uh it's not not spread by human contact but um you you can imagine um that in, you know, in certain parts of the South where the, the well, the South, heck, that could happen here in Chicago. Chicago mm -hmm. is uh, just built on a giant swamp. So, uh, mm -hmm. you know, we've got mosquitoes all over the place. But um, 
uh, just by sticking around and working with those who are dying. You know, the mosquitoes are spreading the disease to anybody they can, you know, they can uh, rest upon. And so he was one of the victims eventually. And they buried him mm -hmm. as they did all the victims at that time rather quickly um, in a, uh, a, a church cemetery. So, okay. Um, then five, six years later, um, he was exhumed. They had opened a brand new cemetery in Chattanooga, mm. a Catholic cemetery. Um, and it's a beautiful cemetery. And then there, there's sort of a hill. And at the very top of the hill, they were uh, set up aside a section of the cemetery for priests and bishops. And so he was the first person to be interred on uh, this hill. Um, but it was, it was, you know, essentially a secondary burial. He had uh, already okay. been buried once. They exhumed him, put him in a, uh, a new container, a new coffin, and reburied him all over again. So the, in Bishop Sticka, I saw his, this, the ceremony where they were preparing for, to do the... A few months ago, as a matter of fact. So his remains then were moved to another location. Where do the cases stand now? Well, let's start with... Let's go back to Father Tolton real quick. Where does his case stand, if you know? Well, as far as I, you know, um, since I don't get to direct uh, direct things all the time, I still think <laughs> they're they're just servants of God. Both of them, they're still okay. working on the the uh, uh, the miracles for both of these individuals. Father Tolton, I think, is farther along in terms of all the documents mm. uh, being submitted for the causes of the saints. Um, and the last I know, they were having some trouble. Uh, and this happens quite a bit in the causes of the saints. Um, a miracle is reported, but when the investigators come out, they, they find that people are actually playing, praying to four or five different saints. Um, and so, um, <laughs> I think my senior Gray mentioned that in his webinar. He said, "You got to make sure you're praying." To it, it, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, since we uh, we we don't uh, have a direct line to the other uh, to the other side of. of uh, <laughs> existence uh we don't really know which one did the inter interceding for things um so uh and and that's always a problem so uh, <laughs> but I, but i would like to say a few uh, a few more things about there's a lot of difference between uh exhuming father tolton and father ryan we we knew that father tolton was buried in a wooden coffin um and that was he was just in the coffin placed in the ground so we pretty much assumed that there would be nothing left except little scraps of wood, some uh, coffin hardware um, and, uh, you know, skeletal remains, you know, to some degree. Um, with Father Ryan, um, there were, was only a newspaper account of him being exhumed from the first grave and reburied. And it's said that he was placed in a, in a very uh, elaborate coffin, and that coffin was placed in a vault uh, in the ground. Um, a vault in you know the early 1880s in the vault now we we didn't quite know what that meant um and what a highly decorative coffin was we all assumed that it was also a wooden coffin so mm -hmm. i was assuming we were going to find maybe a a, a collapsed brick structure with a wooden coffin and, and just skeletal remains inside but what we did find, he was also buried very deeply in the ground. He was like eight feet down. And the reason mm -hmm. eight, nine feet down almost, the reason was is because 
they had piled more dirt on top of his grave as they, uh -huh. you know, they buried him. They then they landscaped the cemetery and then they began burying other priests. Okay. Um, part of the difficulty was, is that graves of uh, uh, two more recently buried priests were uh, slightly intruding upon his grave. So we couldn't just go dig down. We had to dig around with those modern vaults protruding. Um, and so there was difficulty. And so we were eight feet down and I did think that there was a possibility um, that there would be nothing left if he was buried in a wooden box. Uh, and and mm -hmm. I, we, we have, we have uh, precedence for this. Um, uh, John Henry Newman, of course, they they mm -hmm. uh, went to exhume his body and found nothing. Um, right. There was no remains at all. Um, and so I thought at one point I did get into the uh, I was in the grave and there's a point sometimes where it gets to be dangerous uh, because you're you know, once you're once you get in a hole that's a little, you know, above um, uh, your head, there's always danger of collapse, you know, and, and then we had these two other graves on the side, which added extra weight. And I was getting a little, I was getting a, a, a little uh, uh, frightened about, you know, the people working with me. Fortunately, they were some younger men <laughs> doing yeah. most of the heavy work. <laughs> and, uh, but, uh, and they were extremely competent young men working on this. Um, but um, I, I got down and trying to, trying to do, you know, doing my archaeology thing, trying to figure out if I could see any, you know, uh, stains from, you know, the grave and stuff. And uh, the, uh, I had forgotten that I was miked. They had uh, this, <laughs> un unlike um, Augustus Tolton, which we did have a lot of videos and stuff, but with this one, there's more pictures than you could possibly imagine and videos. Oh, um, oh. And I was miked by the videographer. Um, and because he miked me in the morning, put them and microphones are very small these days. And so they and, and I forgot and, and nothing bad, but I got down in there and I, I uh, uh, and I, I do have this tendency to start talking when I'm in a deep hole you know, to sometimes the people who created the, the archaeological remains. But I also began talking to Father Ryan and I said, you know, uh, uh, we're here looking for you and we can't find you, you know, uh, oh. um, you know, uh, I'm sorry, but we're supposed to be calling you back into service. So, you know, I'd really appreciate. And anyway, and so I talked a little oh. more and, and the next day the videographer said, you know, I was going over and he said, one of the most moving moments I've ever captured on film was you talking to Father Ryan oh. down in the, you know, down by yourself in the grave. And I thought, yeah. oh, I, I wonder what I said. Oh. I don't remember. <laughs> well, it said chills to me as you were saying it was, just, it. Yeah, it was just me, you know, talking right. and, you know, but sure enough, in a, in a few minutes, we, uh, we we did some probing and you know he was just six inches underneath where I was mm -hmm. standing. Uh, they removed things, uh, were able to recover his bones and, and things and clean them, and they were reassembled then by the medical examiner. And mm -hmm. we we know from you know history that uh, he was well revered uh, after mm -hmm. his death for having you know sacrificed his life you know to save others. So wow. You know, once it moves into this realm of civil, you know, uh, you know, a larger civil uh, engagement, legal engagement, um, they put together a list of essential personnel. 
And I was told that uh, I didn't have to be on the list. I could stay if I wanted to. So, you know, in respect for my family and my friends and for people, Absolutely. I thought it was, it was, you know, I, I had done my job. I, had, uh, I was asked to find Father Ryan and bring him back to the surface. And I did that. And um. so... Um, <laughs> and, and I really, I really wish I could have stayed to, mm-hmm. to uh, uh, watch. Um, retired medical examiner, just an excellent, excellent person. So I, I have seen pictures of her reassembling everything, and it, you know, it would have been nice to be there because they really did do an excellent job. But it was, it was a lot of work on all of their part, and it was, it, you know, there's certain danger, you know. Is that when you envisioned archaeology, what you thought you would be doing many decades ago? It's, it's <laughs> been so long ago. I, I don't really remember what I was thinking. <laughs> Since you were pulled into it because you were so good at it. That you yeah, you know, it. Uh, it um, you know, I think it's like many careers, you know, uh, you just enjoy the work and you enjoy what, you know, the, the, the study. And, you know, eventually you do get... Uh, uh, very, very few of us get to do exactly what we think we're going to do because reality is far more complicated than our our imaginations when we're younger. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So, so what does your family think of all that you've done, especially with these two cases in my mind, which are just to me fascinating? Um, you know. <laughs> my my wife likes to say she she doesn't like this whole canon law thing uh, because it used to be a great uh, a great um, uh, entree into conversation with people when they would say, well, what do you do? And then, well, what does your husband do? And she'd say, well, my husband's an archaeologist, which would launch into the responses of people that I, you know, I always wanted to be an archaeologist. So she would get to talk about the things that I do. And she said, now I tell people that you, you know, work for the Archdiocese of Chicago as, you know, as in canon law and their faces glass over. And, you know, what do they say? What do they say to that? <laughs> <laughs> and in her term, she's probably thinking, and how do I explain that to someone who has no well, Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And most people, they, they really don't want to know. You know? <laughs> That's it, good. It, it's too long of an explanation and already <laughs> sounds boring, you know. <laughs> and and I apologize to people listening to this, but you know, <laughs> no, not at all. I, I, we, there, there, there was, there's a joke among archaeologists that uh, if there's anything our career gives us, it gives a, we, we become uh, uh, excellent guests at cocktail parties. Uh, <laughs> You, have, you bring something new to the table. Exactly. Well, but to be an archaeologist in, to me, in the Roman Catholic Church, obviously not the oldest religious tradition, but with so much, uh, have, you, have you ever been to Rome? Have you been down to the oh, Scavi and, and under St. Peter's? I, I, I've, been to, I've been to Rome, but most of my work, though, is in, in uh, the Americas in North America. Right. Yeah. So. Well, the, the history aspect of that ties in with archaeology. Um, it, it, is, j- just, just for for your information, there's a whole body of of federal and state law in every state in the country that protects um, archaeological resources. Every time they build a highway, an archaeologist has to go through first to check to make sure they're not destroying any any uh, prehistoric or significant historic um, 
uh, 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 sites. And so mm -hmm. uh, that's really what I've done most of my life, dealing with the, the law of things. In fact, uh, I like to joke with people when they, you know, well, you know how complicated the law can be that, you know, three words can mean, you know, can launch a million ships, you know, of, of things. Well, archaeology in North America uh, rests on uh, a, a one sentence in the 1966 Historic Preservation Act. And that Historic Preservation Act says, or that section 106, that one sentence says, all federal undertakings must take into account historic properties. Well, books, as you can imagine, are written on what, the, you know, what is a federal undertaking? Um, and, you know, what is a historic property? And it just multiplies. And so, you know, yeah. every federal, every permit, every, any dime that goes to anything or indirectly to a project, um, wow. people, pe people always say, boy, what you, what, you know, people must really like to, you know, uh, see what you're doing. And I said, oh no, I said, most property owners, the worst thing that can ha happen to you as a property owner is for some government agency to say to you, you need to call an archeologist. <laughs> we can imagine like in, when you're looking at the Chicago uh, Lincoln Park area with all of those bodies that were moved in those days, it was just, it sounds like it was just mass graves. Is that kind of what they did? Would just yeah. move bodies? And that, that still is done. Um, mm -hmm. It's not well publicized, but that kind of thing still happens um, where whole cemeteries are moved. So you've got another year and a half to go on your canon law degree, and you became a member of the society a year and a half, two years ago or so. Yes, it sounds yes, like, when I, when I started were, school, yes. Study. So would you recommend that uh, others who are starting their studies as a society have um, resources, or you've now become a resource for us? Um, through this podcast, and who knows, someday we'll maybe tap into you to do some more, uh, some more explanations and things. But um, what would you say to any canonists who are just getting started? Well, I, I definitely would advise people. It, it's one of the best organizations I've uh, ever belonged to. Um, I, I think the podcasts, the webinars, um, the conferences. Um, I, I'm always impressed that I get a jump on, you know, I get a jump on issues by listening to, you know, people discuss or a presentation, um, you know, and, and I may not have that class for until the following semester, but it's interesting to, to hear someone dealing with specific cases or situations and how that all works. Um, you, you know, archaeology is a lot more theoretical you know, um, and the law is not is, you know, is definitely, you know, rests on philosophy and, and theory. But, uh, you know, as an anthropologist, I'm interested in human organization. And law is is just and especially church law is just fascinating in how we how we organize humans, how we, you know, build mm -hmm. boundaries. It, it gets to be a lot about meaning. You know how mm. the meaning and the values of Catholicism get expressed through law, and I think being part of the part of a CLSA, uh, I don't know, it just makes everything easier for me. You know, just constantly mm. learning, hearing from other people. Um, mm. It's not just classwork, um, right? Uh, I, I get, to, I, and you know, and then working in in the 
canonical affairs at the Archdiocese, I see these things happening and why mm -hmm. they happen. And, you know, it's, it's not, um, you know, it's not just a, the Catholic Church is not just a club with a set of bylaws, mm -hmm. you know. Um, Absolutely. I am so happy that we did this podcast and we're going to I'll post a couple of links. I'm going to to Father Brian and to Father Tolton and then. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, the, the, the other thing I could say is that uh, they are looking for young people who mm -hmm. really want to make this a career. You know, the, the, and mm -hmm. the, the church, if there's one place where the church does have a good, solid career, it's in canon law. You know, it's mm -hmm. one of the areas with the, they're always going to need canon lawyers. Um, Absolutely. Thank you so much for being with us today. Um, oh, you're welcome. Well, Thank you. It's been it's been a pleasure to talk to you. And um, as as your efforts go on, if you ever want to update us on what's going on, let me know. and We'll do a follow up. I appreciate that. I will. Thank you. <laughs> OK, we'll take care. Bye bye.